All right, we are live, and today's guest was introduced to me by a friend of mine who was an early guest on my podcast, Randall Kenneth Jones, a.k.a. Mm -hmm. Randy Jones, of Jones.show. Everybody should check that out. He's a fun-loving guy, just just a lot of fun. That's the best way I could put Randy. Randy is a, a, a personality in a package. But he said, hey, I had this amazing author on, he wrote, he's writing the Jack Ryan series and it's great. He's the former U.S. Marshal. I said, Oh, former U.S. Marshal. Okay. <laughs> um, no offense. I, I want to get into the marshaling lifestyle. I appreciate the books, which is awesome, but I've come to find that YouTube and books don't always go together. It, it's like, it's like book readers are spending so much time reading books. They may not be watching YouTube. <laughs> I guess so. There's I can't, not a complete. Uh, I can't disagree. I mean, we get out here and we sort of pimp our stuff over the internet, and because that's what we're supposed to do. Um, and I, I guess, what I hope is that people will get to know me as a writer and as a human being. I, I've never bought a book that somebody told me to buy on Facebook, and I've got you know 2,400 writers that that are that are fans. But but I bought books that people told me about in person or that a friend might have told me about, but just some unknown entity on YouTube or Facebook. But, you know, we're doing the best we can, and books sell one at a time. And really what we're doing is selling a, I shouldn't say sell, but trying to give with these sorts of things and the things like you do is give something of value to people besides just being a bunch of chirping birds that say, buy my book, buy my book. (laughs) Can you pull your microphone away from your collar a little bit? I'm getting that little scratchy sound. You might, yeah, there we go. Sorry about that. Um, I should say uh, the name is Mark Cameron. (laughs) Mark not only writes the Jack Ryan series, which is very cool, but he writes a couple other series, one of which I've been reading the book on, Arliss Cutter. Um, I'm enjoying the aspect of the Alaskan wilderness, which I want to just ask you about because we're going to get deep into the other you seem to be almost obsessed with getting to Alaska from childhood. Absolutely. No, I was. I, anybody that's checked any of my other interviews out, I I carved a pair of snow goggles out of a cottonwood root when I was 12 years old, 11 wow. or 12 years old in Texas, just because I wanted that experience. I read a book about two boys that were marooned in the North barren lands of Canada and they got snow blind and you know in Texas you don't understand snow blind but I had my Whitland knife and some fake sinew thread and made me some snow goggles I think my friends and my parents thought I was a little bit nutty but where I you Texas, know I really wanted to go there where in Texas were you from just west of Fort Worth a little town called Weatherford okay so that's not that's not really the hardcore deserty part of Texas, is no, it? No, no, no. It's ranch land. It's rolling hills, and I mean, it's not the hill country, but it's right. wide open north central Texas. You know, just right outside of Fort Worth, between Fort Worth and Abilene. Okay, I didn't know if you were like I, I'm from Tucson, Arizona, and okay, yeah, you know. <laughs> Everybody's like, oh, but it's a dry heat. And I'm like, so it's a convection <laughs> oven, and I don't want to sit inside that. Right. But, it's uh, hot. It's very hot, and it's humid. It's certainly mm-hmm. not, apart from a week and a half this last winter, um, they hardly get, you know, we, I don't didn't see much snow growing up. But I just want to go to Alaska. It's been a, a calling of mine, I think. It's interesting. And one thing I 
observed, I've never been to Alaska, it's just what I read about or hear about or whatever else, is being a U.S. Marshal, if you want to find some criminals, that's a pretty good spot to look. Hmm. No, very true. You know, a lot of people think that, I mean, Alaska is kind of an end-of-the-road place anyway, and mm-hmm. um, but people that go out and live in the like there's a, a there's a ton of reality TV shows up here. Most of them are bunk, but there are a couple of good ones. And and one of them is uh, Life Below Zero. A friend of mine is the producer, one of the producers of that, that shows some of the realities. Of course, it's you know they want the excitement and the drama and all that. Sure. But Norvik is Norvik, and my wife and I've been there on literacy programs and things like that. And that little village where the the hailstones live, they do a good job of depicting that. And so there are so there is a certain end of the road aspect of coming to Alaska, but that doesn't mean that they're necessarily criminals. What it does mean is that, well, and anybody that ran to Norvik that had a you know was a bank robber or whatever, the citizens of Norvik would go, that guy doesn't belong here, and call the marshals or the troopers. But what it does mean is that there's it's a certain sort of of uh, personality that's that comes to the end of the road that kind of wants to be mm-hmm. left alone. So if those people commit crimes, there's a, there's a bit, it, it can get tricky when you're going to get them because they don't want to be got, they don't even want to be contacted, let alone nobody wants to be arrested, but they don't even want to be contacted. Is it a land of redemption? Like I was thinking about it, like, you know, a place that you're like, everything's gone to hell. I'm just going to go to the wilderness and find myself and, maybe rebuild my life from nothing. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a really good observation. I would point out that, I mean, I'm, we're having some work done at my house. So I'm at a hotel right now in Anchorage. Anchorage is a city of almost sure. 300,000 oh, yeah. people, Normal but city. we always joke that Anchorage is a great place to come visit. Cause it's only an hour away from Alaska by <laughs> airplane. So Yeah. Out in the woods, out in the, we call it the bush here, basically any place that's not connected by road, um, which is most of Alaska. Yeah, I think, I mean, I've certainly found that here, being out in western Alaska on the on the Kuskokwim River, the Yukon River, the Kobuk River, everything sort of goes by the rivers, you know, because that's the way you mm-hmm. get around if you're not going by air. And, um, and, and I've sent, you know, when I was chief deputy, I sent deputies out with the express purpose of, um, just getting to know the people because, you know, the, the, uh, several of the native dialects, whether it's Yupik or Inupak or Athabascan, but particularly the Inupak and Yupik, what we would call Eskimos. And in Canada, that might be a derogatory term here. They say, are they offended by that or no? No, because- not so much in Alaska. They call themselves Yupik Eskimos. Okay. Um, I generally stay away from it just because of talking to everyone and all that and call themselves what, call them what they call themselves and, right. and well we had that so, in arizona every tribe i've ever come across they call themselves indian right and right they kind of get annoyed sometimes with native american because right. they as they put it americans are the oppressors so why do we want to call yeah. ourselves that yeah so i i exactly <laughs> and i generally try to just go with what they're calling it's they're they are generally the people they're just call themselves mm. the people so so uh you pick for instance they're word for trooper or marshal is literally translates as the the man who comes and takes people away. And so <laughs> that's a hard 
thing to live up to is that when you're going out and you're trying to help a community. Um, right. And we were looking for, um, after the Adam Walsh Act, we were assigned, the Marshal Service mm. was assigned to go out and, and basically not necessarily arrest them all, but at least get all the unregistered sex offenders registered so that we knew where they were and protect the communities from that kind of mm. behavior. And so we were out in all over the place, but that also took us into Bush, Alaska as deputy marshals, which is really the purview of the troopers. So we were out there sometimes for the first time and the deputies would would go in and couldn't get anybody to talk to them. And so we went into a, a village and a hub village of Bethel, the main village along the Kuskokwim there. It's got about 3000 people. Alaska Airlines flies into it, but you can't drive to it. Hmm. it takes a couple of hours to get to it from from uh, Anchorage from in a small, medium-sized plane. So um, we were, I went a little meeting and instead of being that oppressor, like you're talking about that, you know, that we're here, we're from the government, we're here mm-hmm. to help. We asked them what they wanted, what, you know, we're here. We have a small amount of funds. We've got these people coming in here in, con- we're basically a force multiplier for the troopers because mm. That area out there is the size of Oregon, and it's got like 15 troopers that handle it. It's just, it's overwhelming for them. And they're good men and women that are really trying to do the day-to-day law enforcement. So we were a force multiplier, but instead of saying, we've got this great new plan, you know, native peoples of Western Alaska, get ready to swallow a hook, line, and sinker. We said, what do you want us to do? And one of the ladies Mm -hmm. actually wept, and she said, People don't ever ask us that. They used to have a boat that would go up and down the river with books on it. And the kids would just stop and they would let them check, like a bookmobile. Yeah. And yeah. so the troopers and I and the marshal service, uh, there's a trooper captain and I that kind of just thought that's a great idea. And so we tasked our folks. They got 30,000 books donated by folks in Anchorage and Fairbanks, one of the nice. local transport companies took them out there for us for free. And our headquarters bought us a boat, a small river boat. And then we just put a deputy and a trooper. And then the troopers provided a boat up on the Yukon. Mm-hmm. So we were on the Cusquim River and we took the boat, the boxes and I mean, tote after tote, you know, plastic bin mm-hmm. of books. And I would send deputies out there on a rotational basis. And these are hardened, you know, fugitive hunting, judge protecting, prisoner handling deputies. Sure. And, they're getting ready to go out on kind of a sociology mission, you know, and they, they go out and to a person, every one of them wanted to go right back. And and I would say, I, I would, my mandate was, if you see some bad behavior, if you see a felony happen in front of you, you know, somebody hurting a child or abusing right. a woman, I want you to handle it quickly and out in the open and decisively. But when you come back, I want the seat of your britches muddy from sitting on the bank reading the kids. And mm. the and the the kids responded, the people responded. And so when you talk about redemption, obviously somebody that's running trying to change their life, but it certainly has made a difference in the deputy marshals up here that have gone out to western Alaska. That's to awesome. Me. I I mean there's a lot to be said for that. I think not only where you are, but I've long argued that we need to get back to walking beats. 
oh, yeah. with cops and just mm-hmm. and and less of the military, you know, garb. More like I, I always make the joke that bicycle cops don't intimidate me. <laughs> it's hard to be intimidated by they're on a bike. They're, 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 but you feel better talking to them. They just feel like your neighbor mm-hmm. or somebody in the neighborhood versus when they're jacked up with armor and combat fatigues as a normal uniform. It's, it's like, why? So I really do think that that's awesome. Just being, Hey, hanging out part of the community. And I can see where it's val- invaluable for you because you might get people coming out of the woodwork who you don't even know exists, but because, you know, they come and get a couple books, you get a little bit of a relationship, get a lay of the land. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you're not a, you're not the person coming in to take somebody away. We have a kind of a storied past in the marshal service back in the six fifties, sixties, seventies, when, you know, early on in the forties, when in the early fifties, when Alaska was a territory, um, well-meaning medical staff would go out and, identify people with epilepsy or different things like that and oh. get warrants for them, you know, a writs of attachment or really not being arrested, but they're a civil attachment. And then deputy marshals would fly in and, and take them to a facility. And early on in my marshal service career in Alaska. So I'd been on, I'd been on the job about eight years. I've been a police officer for seven years before that. So I wasn't new, but I got a call right after I moved here. The, the, uh, person handling reception just transferred. I think I was the duty deputy or something. And the lady said, I'm looking for my auntie. She, you guys came and got her in 1974 and we can't find. And I said, what did, what did we get her for? I mean, that's a long time ago. And they said, well, she was epileptic and I, and I denied it. I said, we would never have done that. I can't imagine us doing that. And I took her name and number and I went and told my boss and he said, Oh yeah, we did that. We absolutely did that. And they never saw this lady again. And so she just got lost in the system. And so, in fact, that's the the book before Bone Rattle explores that kind of, you know, what is that? What does Arlos Cutter do? And Lola, his partner, is the deputy going out in this Bush community where that's happened. Wow. That's insane. And I don't remember if it was a book or an interview. It all blurs together when I'm researching. But you made a statement that when you're going and plucking the people out, you're essentially taking out the garbage. And mm-hmm. I don't mean it in a rude way, but it, you it rather, because you can't, there's going to be a lot of smaller felons, a lot of people that you don't necessarily oh, have I time see. or resources to mess with. So you go, okay, who is the worst, you know, baddest person in town? And you guys would go take them out. Is that a. Right. Yeah. I, w- I wouldn't call it taking out the garbage, but I see what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. We, we kind of refer to them as the village terrorist. You, you tell the community leaders, look, we don't have the personnel or the really the political clout to come in. Cause let's face it. If it's no matter what your philosophy is about second amendment or guns, the law says that if you're a violent felon, you can't have a firearm. But the courts are not going to take your the, microphone, by the way, is starting the, to, the uh, <laughs> courts are not going to take away the um, firearms of somebody that hunts to make right. a living. Right. Un- unless that person is shooting up the town at night and getting drunk on homebrew and all that. So even though it's, quote unquote, against the law, we're not going to um, we're just not going to pursue that unless the community says this guy is going to kill somebody. 
this guy mm-hmm. is going to really hurt somebody. And then we'll focus on that and kind of make that village terrorist and then use our political clout to go to the assistant U.S. attorney and say, we really need a court order, you know, an arrest warrant for this guy. Take this case kind of a thing. So being out in the bush, getting to know the people, um, that that kind of allowed us to become subject matter experts on the mm-hmm. on the bush, if you will. Well, it sounds like a, an actual community partnership. Like you're not just yeah. going in there and saying, hey, go, come here. You know, yeah, you're exactly. saying, how can we help you? Do you have any problems? Mm-hmm. And then if they tell you it's less likely to bite you in the ass later, if the community themselves are saying, please help us with this person or these people, they're oh, really yeah. causing problems. Right. And the troopers deal with it. And I, I don't want to make it seem like we're the, you know, the saviors that come in and save them. The troopers deal with this on a daily basis. All we did was come out and, and give them more personnel. We get, we were force multipliers that were able to come out there. Plus with some funding coming from the U S government and the Bureau of Indian affairs and, and folks like that. So it, uh, it definitely was a, a good experience. It's a, uh, we just hope it continues, you know. Uh, you know, I'm. What, <laughs> I want to come into this. I feel like a dummy, but I'm. I'm also a person who gripes about too many federal organizations. Mm-hmm. Turns out you're the oldest law enforcement organization in the country, and I did not know this. Oh, cool. That 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 was like, oh, really? Okay, that's interesting. So you're before Secret Service, before the FBI. I mean, way before the FBI. Mm-hmm. way before the secret service and all that. Why did you get created to begin with? So the, so George Washington created the Marshall service in part of the, as part of the judiciary act. And this is the, this is the, uh, the spiel for the rotary club that you're getting. Sorry, but the, oh, we, no, 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 no. <laughs> the Washington created the Marshall service as part of the judiciary act in 1789. So sometimes we have these little, polite banter back and forth with postal inspectors where they say they were the oldest law enforcement agency. They're not, they're part of the oldest agency, but there was no law enforcement component to them till well after the marshal service. So the marshal service started because in as part of our constitution, the military can't enforce federal law on our, our land and, you know, on home soil. And so because Washington only had the army, only, you know, the new fledgling army, and much of it was disbanded to go home and plant mm-hmm. crops after the revolution was over. Then he needed somebody to basically be the muscle for the whiskey rebellion. And so, oh, okay. and so he okay. created 13 United States marshals and each of those U S marshals who are appointed by the president can appoint deputies. And I was a deputy U.S. Marshal, eventually a chief deputy. But that's a nowadays that's a civil service position. United States Marshals, the gold badge U.S. Marshal. There's 94 of those, one for every judicial district, and they change at the pleasure of the president. So anytime there's a new administration, most of them go the way of the dodo and get a new one. Okay, well, and uh, okay, that's interesting. So that explains, and your mic is. Everybody's. I'm sorry. If you could just kind of hold it out, I don't know if if there's a way to push it up. Maybe button my shirt. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe I. I don't know. It's. I know it keeps hitting, and it's tough for you to hear it. 
Um, I'm guessing that's why there's a closer relationship to the states, because especially early in the country, the states had far more power and, and more representation. It took, you know, Civil War kind of federalized things much more. But you guys seem to be this neither neither fish nor fowl. I mean, you seem to be kind of in this weird spot. And I've heard you say, like a sheriff, I know when I heard of them before, I thought of a sheriff. But even mm-hmm. a sheriff is a weird job because mm-hmm. I'm from Arizona. You're from Texas. In Tucson, the sheriff was a deputy sheriff. They're the real deal, full-blown law enforcement. I now live in Hampton, Virginia, which is incorporated <laughs> with the county. So the entire county and the city are the same. Right. The sheriff guards the courts, mm-hmm. puts people in the bail, serves warrants, and the police are the law enforcement. Right. So it seems to be a weird um, spot. Are, are, are you kind of filling in gaps? Well, you know, the, the thing about the marshal service is that our credential says enforce federal law. There's no, there's no, this person can enforce 18 USC code, whatever. This person can do this drug crime or, you know, investigate this drug crime. Or this person can investigate this crossing state lines crime. Our mandate is to enforce federal law. And so because we're the oldest law enforcement agency, that just cha- that nothing changed as we grew and other agencies sprang up. I mean, the, the, the person that protected President Lincoln was a deputy U.S. marshal who went to his grave upset that he wasn't there whenever, you know, it wasn't full time protection mm. all the time. And you'll see him in some old photographs, but he was taller than Lincoln. So he's almost always seated when Lincoln was standing because it made too big a he didn't want to. He didn't want to cast a shadow on the president. Interesting. I'm curious on that. When I hear that, hear Lincoln and his protection, then I think Pinkertons. Did the Marshals mm-hmm. have a relationship with the Pinkerton? Probably not a probably not a good one. The Pinkertons were <laughs> not. Um, you know, and and the Marshal Service generally it's grown over the years. In the, there's been a time in our history when the Marshals did very little except um, census work. There was a time when marshals were slave hunters, slave catchers. There was a time when, you know, there's marshals have been around from the very beginning and so of the nation. And so, and, and as I mentioned before, um, marshals were taking, you know, epileptics out of, you know, basically if you think about the, the marshals, we're a reflection of the court. And so if the court, so even though we're the executive branch, if the court says um, this needs to happen, there's nothing, there's no muscle in the federal court. The executive mm. branch is what provides that muscle. By and the way, so, I love that. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I think that's actually a feature. I love the fact <laughs> that the court doesn't have the power. I, I wish Congress would take a little bit back, but anyway, that's the conversation. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the, um, I was at dinner, my partner and I, when I was in Texas pretty early on, we had, we were protecting a judge who had some threats against him and we were at dinner one night. And of course we, we can't drink. Well, so the judge is having a little bit of wine and we're just sitting there trying to hurry and eat our whatever so that he can leave whenever he wants to Um, basically just eating. So he's not eating alone. And the, and the judge and my partner who was the senior partner got into this not debate, but kind of a philosophical discussion about Mm -hmm. what we've been talking about. 
And uh, the, my partner, I guess, felt like it was time to broach the subject. And he said, well, what do you think gives you the power to do what you do, Your Honor? And the judge quoted, you know, whatever statutes and the Judiciary Act and all that. And uh, my partner said, no, no. I mean, what do you think gives you the power? And the judge did this kind of the same thing. And my partner kind of reached back and opened his coat and showed him his pistol. And he said, no, sir, this is what gives you the power. And the judge kind of smiled and he goes, well, you're right, but I don't think we should speak of this anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Your partner must have read Andrew Jackson when he said, said, okay, now you go. go." (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Who's going to enforce that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, you, you said your law. Good luck. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We'll see how that works out for you. Right. Exactly. Now, okay, speaking of working out and protections, this is something I had to get into because, boy, I think this is bonkers. (laughs) Who the hell protects whom? And by that, I mean you, um, the marshals protect judges, but you also have Capitol Police. I believe they protect uh, the House or, you know, Congress. Mm -hmm. You have Secret Service, and they're busy protecting the president. You have the DSS, and they're busy protecting diplomats uh, and people overseas. Then I heard an interview. You actually have done stuff with DSS. So mm-hmm. sounds like you know you got it all right. You bet you make an A. <laughs> oh goodness, help help me figure that out because uh, isn't that a kind of a weird thing where it's like there's all this crazy crossover? Well, there, there, you could look at it that way, but everybody's got a, a job. The Marshal Service. The reason we work with DSS, with Diplomatic mm-hmm. Security, is because we do have that training the the um the overall training and we have the jurisdiction so we can enforce federal law so which means protect folks here in the united states and so because we train to protect protected witnesses we train to protect the judiciary whether you know the only time we would protect district judges the judges out and about in the united states the mm-hmm. trial judges or when there's a a threat you know, whether it's not just a, a threatening letter, but something where they do the like an El know, they, Chapo they, case, they run, yeah, yeah. A so, big, big or, cartel right, or, or like for instance, some of the ones I was on were uh, Judge Bukasi after the first World Trade Center bombing when Ramsey Youssef and those mm. guys they drove the truck underneath the Trade Center and tried to blow it up. So, I, I, I rotated back to that, I think, three or maybe four times at least on three-week assignments. We were just there full-time, like the Secret Service is on the president, except to a much smaller capacity with much less money. But um, <laughs> we rotate back, and every and there's sort of a little bit of overlap, but every couple of weeks there's new people coming in to, to fill out that detail. But because we have that expertise and training, and not just training, but day-to-day you know, doing the job, then whenever the – the uh, United Nations General Assembly happens and there's just so many dignitaries, foreign dignitaries coming into the United States, foreign ministers or what other countries call secretaries of state or what we call a secretary of state. All these foreign ministers are coming in and ambassadors that DS has primary responsibility for. Mm. Secret Service has primary responsibility for the the heads of state. So anybody like that coming in. So there's tons of secrets. New York City hates us during, we call it UNGA, UN General Assembly, because there's 
just parades of flashing lights and siren. You can't even walk across the street. In fact, my detail uh, nearly ran over. Um, I can't even remember who it was. Um, Liam Neeson one time because he was <laughs> trying to cross the street, and I was like, "He'll get our number and hunt us down." Yeah, it's but, uh, phone yeah. number. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, so we. Uh, so we're we're everywhere because we have that training. DS reaches out to us and says, "Hey, can you come augment our details?" We don't go as just a marshal service detail. We augment. You know, they'll send two or three of us each to the DS details. Okay, and I was just thinking about: Do you have the magic ability too, to where you can deputize to swell it even yeah, more? Absolutely, like, absolutely. Okay, so we need uh, another ten bodies here. Hey. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> we do that with department. we do that with state and locals. Not so much with the DS, you know, diplomatic security details, but with our own details, we have the powers of a sheriff, which means we can deputize. So during the Salt Lake City Olympics, for instance, we deputized mm-hmm. a bunch of people to help with that. So, in fact, some of the um, some of my my son works with Anchorage PD now. He was a little boy then, but some of the people he worked with works with now were younger officers with Anchorage PD and they went same time I did flew to Salt Lake city and were deputized in mass to be special deputy U S marshals during the period of the Olympics so that they could enforce. So they would have jurisdiction in a place outside of their normal jurisdiction. No, without going into the weeds, that automatically makes me think jurisdictional questions. And and if an, if nothing happens, it's like, oh yeah, this is cool. We're just supplementing the ranks. But it's mm-hmm. like, okay, now let something. Let's say something does happen. Mm-hmm. Did that person effectively? Is it the U.S. Marshals who performed this act, or or had this incident, or is it the cop who's working under? You, do you understand where I'm going with? No, it? I, like, I do, and I I was, you know. There's memorands of understanding that happen in that. That's that's way far above my pay grade when I was a, mm-hmm. a deputy. And as a chief, I never really had to deal with that. I will say that as a chief deputy, when we brought over, um, we call them TFOs, task force officers that are sworn in from Anchorage police or the troopers or whatever to work as special deputy marshals in a fugitive task force, then we would they would fall under our umbrella. Um, as far as if anything happened, but then they would still have to, you know, meet there. Basically, whoever had the strictest rules, they generally fell under. It not, it didn't really get easier. It became it was just really just a matter of being able to do the job. Um, okay, interesting. Now, in several of your interviews, one thing that kind of um, rang a bell with me, and not in a bad way. I think it's interesting. It seems like the marshals maybe attract a quirky character type. And (laughs) I'm just saying this because, one, you describe, you know, people with, you know, really glossy gun or, you know, weapons or pistols with all the shininess and um, using um, a, a giant gun as a backup. People being armed to the teeth in a almost, um, military manner like a, a ranger i think you mm-hmm. mentioned you mentioned somebody else who had a mustache and i think you have a character in the book based probably on that same mm-hmm. person who had the crazy mustache that nobody mm-hmm. bugged because yeah he's a good marshal but mm-hmm. we don't get into it so is justified not completely off base in terms of kind of a little quirky soul 
not one not one tiny bit it's very real i you know i drew a i one of my hobbies is pencil art and i wish i still had that somebody in the marshal service has this now but when i was in the academy actually i think it was an advanced class down at the federal law enforcement training center i sketched out a little sketch after being you go to advanced usually after five years so by that Mm -hmm. time i had over 10 years in law enforcement experience probably almost 15 and I do. I did a little sketch where there was a, a sort of the the agent in the federal government as they really were, and then how they pictured themselves. So you know, obviously the FBI was Superman up at the top. You know, mm-hmm. the complete package. The the IRS agent was pretty much the same thing. You know, the accountant guy that was really into the they were the Clark Kent, yeah, the, the Clark Kent, <laughs> right? The, and ATF agent was more militaristic. You know, the SWAT team looking guy. The DE agent was the you know the narcos dude, and mm. and the deputy marshal was a cowboy because that's the way we looked at ourselves. That's the way when I came on, um, the Raylan Givens wasn't even. You know, it was a book back then. Right. Elmore Leonard is kind of Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, he had a lot of friends in the Marshal Service. And so he got some good insight. But (laughs) there's a certain kind of personality that's drawn to the Marshal Service as there is to the FBI and the DEA and whatnot. And I just feel very privileged to. I mean, I was a mounted police officer and a horseshoer and. You know, I, I, not that you have to have anything to do with horses or cows, but just that sort of that swagger, because Mm -hmm. oftentimes you're, you're rarely by yourself, but often it's just you and one other person. And so you kind of have to have a bit of swagger and you have to, um, and I understand what you said earlier about the militaristic thing. And I think we as police officers need to work on our, our demeanor and our, but Oftentimes, there's a lot of people that really want to hurt us, and you don't have to be mm. a foreign power to be an enemy to someone. They, people can pray to the same God and be in the same country and still act. I mean, I'm I'm happy if my son gets out of his car and throws on a Kevlar helmet. It's it may look overbearing, overbearing, but mm. there was an officer in I can't remember North Carolina or South Carolina just a week ago that was saved. Because and two of his partners were killed, murdered mm-hmm. during a shootout, but he went against the tactical, you know, and threw on a Kevlar helmet when he got out. And there's a bullet hole in the top of his helmet. So there does definitely need to be a balance in the way we think of things. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I mean, for instance, all my deputies that went out to Western Alaska, I put them in a uniform, and we're not a uniformed agency. We're a I'm I'm dressed like I did, you know, mm-hmm. with, when I was a chief over a tie. When I was a deputy, I was supposed to wear a tie, but groused about it all the time. <laughs> but but I or um, a bolo tie, I yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no bolo ties. But yeah, exactly. In fact, when you go to UN, when you go to UNGA, they put a big thing out that says like no cowboy boots, no bolo ties, no <laughs> Miami Vice jackets. They stuff knew like you were that. coming. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but when we would go out to Bush, Alaska, because we weren't a uniform but the troopers were, and we were with the troopers. I put them in an exterior vest that said police U S marshal on the front and the back um, with the badge and, you know, a ball cap. We didn't wear the cool 
Smokey the Bear hats like they did. I wish I could talk to my bosses into that. But um, have you ever worn one? They're not cool. They freaking hurt. Oh well, they, they cut into on, your skull. It depends. Yeah, it depends on the shape. Drill sergeant. It, it's uh-huh. like pain. Yeah, exactly. Well, they don't wear them that way. But I'm a hat guy, so yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I guess I we were a bit. We could have been looked at as a bit of a juggernaut, mm-hmm. but the way we acted, I wanted people to know who we were, and. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like I remember going into one village and we went there over and over and they're not used to that. And one lady, she wouldn't even talk to me the first time we went there. And then the next time she was a little less standoffish, but, you know, chatted a bit. The third time I went, she grabbed me by the arm with both hands, like my bicep and tricep. She grabbed me by the arm and she kind of shook it. And she said, Marshall, I feel such love and power when you come to visit us. And I just <laughs> okay. thought, wow, okay, three. Uh, see, the third time's the charm. No deception there, but it was the third time. <laughs> oh my God, that is insane. Um, I'm curious because you you did work at the agency and all that. Now I've interviewed CIA agents, uh, FBI, etc. Mm-hmm. And I don't know which or who, but many of them have to get a clearance every time they write a book. Mm-hmm. Are you in that same boat that every time you write a book, especially because you're writing about a marshal that you've got to turn it in? And No, I'm I'm very fortunate that there were no writers before me. And so I was kind of a new the new writers, new deputies mm-hmm. do when they get one. But I had a letter when I, I was still employed with them when I wrote and I wrote Westerns under the name Mark Henry. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I couldn't write about the marshal service because I was still a, still a deputy. Right. Right. And um, so I got a letter saying, yeah, right. Be happy, you know, and report your income on your little OG 450 and all that, which means that it's yeah. the little thing you fill out so that you're not, you know, investigating somebody you own stock with or whatever. And so um, I retired, started writing full time. And now I think that's a that's a thing that has to be done. But I never had to bother with that. And I steer because my I have so many friends in the Marshal Service because I I have um you know relatives in law enforcement, my sons in law enforcement. I really I don't get into the weeds. These are about the characters. I write mm-hmm. in each book there's a thing about a mission of the Marshal Service, not the dirty laundry. I mean I want to make the Marshal Service look good. I think I might say in there that, you know, I think in one of the books, I have um, Arliss talking to his boss, his chief, Jill Phillips, and she says, or he says that, or she says that Lola's a, can be a ruthless self-promoter. And and uh, he says, well, we've, we've got no, <laughs> we've got no, no yeah, loss for those in, in the marshal <laughs> service. And and uh, Jill says, well, you know what, that's, that's the people that get places sometimes is these ruthless self-promoters. So, you know, I mean, I'm, and but that's don't not like just the FBI the, much. Yeah, what's that? And Arliss doesn't seem to like the FBI much. Well, and or that, at least and, one agent. Yeah, in this in this particular book, and that's that's something that's just a truism. It's not the agents themselves. It's the the bureau versus the marshal service. I mean, when I hired on, we had a, a kind of a mantra. I can't remember if it was Avis or Hertz, whoever was the second. Mm, yeah, you know, there's two three. big. Yeah, so the marshal services. Mantra was like, we're number two, so we try harder kind of a thing uh, because the FBI got all the money and, all you know, all the personnel and all of that. So 
there is some interagency rivalry there, but I have many friends that are FBI agents. One of the guys that I worked with at the police department retired as the special agent in charge of, of one of the Florida offices. So yeah, I don't, uh, I try to make it real, but not make it the sort of that trope of all FBI I, agents are jerks kind of I, thing. I will tell you, I, I interviewed a couple of DEA agents, uh, two of them who brought down Pablo Escobar. Mm-hmm. And I won't say which one, but one of them did say that they absolutely hated the CIA, period. <laughs> that, that, that was real. Oh, yeah. They could oh, yeah. not stand the CIA at all. Very, very bad blood. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that whole different. That's that whole different mindset of the type of people that go into the to uh, DEA versus CIA. And, and CIA is not a law enforcement organization, so they have two separate missions. One is gathering intelligence. One is putting bad people in jail. And those missions don't necessarily, you know, meld together. No, and there are sometimes there anyway. <laughs> There's maybe a little history in there that's saying oh, yeah. it actually does the exact opposite at yeah. times. Yeah. So uh, I I would love to find out in terms of your career, because you, you've been all over the place. You've done the Fugitive Task Force. Um, you've done protection. I would think that protection could be a very, very severe risk when transporting a high-profile felon from one place to another be it in terms of them escaping or somebody wanting them dead both ways. Right. Have you been fortunate to avoid that in your career or have you had any incidents that have affected you in doing No, that? no um, I have not had any incidents where they, where we were under attack or anything we've had, we've been followed. We've been, you know, things like that. But if generally speaking, the marshal service or any agency that does a lot of, a lot of um, transport, whether, you know, you're, you're really, you're protecting the people, even whether they're in custody or not, that protecting a judge is much different than the way you do it than you do a, a prisoner. Cause the prisoners are chained up and, you know, mm-hmm. and leg irons and belly chain and handcuffs and whatnot. But uh, we have had some people that, I mean, I found blades inside of, inside of uh, tennis shoes that, so there were people that were going to try to escape, but we've been mm-hmm. able to really, if you, there's a, you know, you've had Mark McClish on as one of your guests before, mm-hmm. and, and he was my um, class coordinator at Fletzy and he and the other instructors there just, they really hammered home to us. And then I subsequently hammered it home to the new deputies that would come and work with. Mm-hmm. And for me, follow these guidelines, follow these policy rules, and then. 99% of the time, you're going to be okay. Um, there's a, a famous case of a deputy named Mike Thompson who taught at our academy when I was there. He uh, he and another deputy, I can't recall her name, but they were taking a um, prisoner. It was in Virginia. And they were taking him to a medical appointment. Well, medical appointments are one of those really tricky things because you keep that a secret from the prisoner because you don't want what you're talking about oh, yeah. to happen. But if somebody says to their gets it out by code, hey, I'm going to have a heart, you know, heart palpitations, be ready at this time and this time, then, it, you know, we have to see to their medical needs. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not sure the background of it. It's, it's on um, 
William Shatner, I think, narrated the show. It's on one of those police shows back in the He's done 90s. So many help. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, okay, well, right. But Mike, but Mike, yeah, yeah, exactly. When, I think it was during the TJ Hooker times. But anyway, oh, it, it's about true. I think, I can't remember if Caliber Press or who put it out, but it's kind of a, no, because it wasn't a training video. It was an entertainment video. But mm. it's about people that, I think one of the guys got shot in the mouth and it hit him in the tongue. And this is a different officer and he gave chase and made the arrest, you know, and talking. So it's about basically working through. Well, Mike had a, a guy, a male and a female accomplice of their bad guy, their prisoner approached them as they were leaving the doctor's office. And it, it's easy to find on the internet. I won't, I might mistake, you know, might mess up some of the details, but basically there was a, the woman put the, put a gun to the small of his back and Mike kind of goes over what happened to him when he's in our class, you know, doing the presentation to young deputies. And it's fascinating, but apart from just the tactics that he used, one of the things that he really drummed home to us was follow these policies, follow these guidelines, because this can happen. So make sure that you really keep the, you know, your operational security up to snuff to cut that, cut that down because it ended up in a, I mean, basically he had his hands up, he had his gun in a shoulder holster and long story short, he shot them both before they knew what was going on and put Mm -hmm. his foot on the prisoner and scanned the area, you know, just like immediately. Yeah. He just, he's probably one of the, finest gunfighter the modern marshal services and and not he in his own words he says he was not that great a shot he was just a good tactician and strategy person wow that that's that's amazing i was just thinking too uh, before we got started recording you were commenting and it makes total sense that your job as a marshal especially dealing with uh, i guess i would I would say prisoners. I don't know what you call them because technically they have not been found guilty. So they're still prisoners. They can't leave. <laughs> they're they can't, not. No, inmates. they can't leave. But technically, they're not they inmates can't. in the right. prison. But they are prisoners of a county jail or state facility. Okay. Well, there we go. Because I don't want to call them convicts because they haven't been convicted. Correct. Correct. So that I guess that's why I was having trouble with the terminology. Mm-hmm. But it's not your job to judge them or anything else. It's your job to instruct them and safely move them from one place to another. Mm-hmm. Was that the most beneficial thing was to be respectful toward them? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, you know, in, in Alaska particularly, you know, in Texas and Idaho, we were moving people by sedan. I mean, when I first started in... in uh, detainees, uh, that's a good one. Yeah, detainees is good. That's good. Um, but we just call them prisoners. You got the prisoner run in the morning. You got the prisoner <laughs> run in the evening. The new deputy knows that they're going to be, and, and we call it prisoner operations. So there's enforcement operations, which is the sexy side of the marshal service. You get in the job to go arrest, you know, serve warrants. Um, and then there's prisoner ops, which every new deputy has to sort of do their time in. In bone rattle, they do some movements. And, and as a writer, as a, as a would-be rider and a young rider and a young deputy moving up, sort of moving through the ranks, that never bothered me because I, it's a people business, just like writing's a people business, and I'm learning people and watching people, and and it's all about strategy and and um, as far as the safety side of things, but treating people 
whether you, if you're going to spend six hours or eight hours or 11 hours in a caged Chevy Caprice driving across the country and dropping people off and picking people up, you should be nice. You should treat them like human beings. Mm-hmm. And the same in an airplane. Our, our, uh, when I first moved to Alaska, we had a small, uh, I think it had 11, 11 seats, a little uh, Cheyenne 3A turboprop airplane. And um, we would fly prisoners. We don't. We didn't have enough jail space in Alaska, so we kept the bulk of our prisoners in Seattle, which meant that at least once a week, sometimes twice a week, we were flying one day down, picking mm. up prisoners, flying one day back. So there was just this constant move like back and service. forth, exactly. <laughs> with the, so it, it was a great job for a writer because I would say, yeah, yeah, put me on that plane, and I would sit and scribble stories while we were flying between Seattle and in Anchorage all day, but there's generally speaking, there's a prisoner two inches away. Sometimes your knees are interwoven if they're tall, mm-hmm. you know, so it's just better to treat them like human beings. And and I, you may have heard me say this on previous interviews, but people always ask as a, as a crime writer, you know, I highlight evil. I highlight the darkness, the, the mm-hmm. Alaska noir, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. But out of almost 30 years of law enforcement, I probably only met top number, maybe 15 evil people. It's probably closer to 10, a dozen maybe evil, evil people. There's a lot of people that have done bad things, evil things even. Mm -hmm. But we're seeing them on the worst, you know, as a patrol officer, my son sees them on the worst day of their life. Sometimes I see them on the, you know, when they're contemplating or standing at the judgment bar for the worst day of their life or whatever. Um, and so you get to know the people, you chat with them a bit. Don't treat them like they're your buddies. That's not right. healthy, but certainly treat them like human beings. Out of those handful or whatever, um, have you ever met anyone that actually scared you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There was a, there was a guy, he, he was on death row for a while. Um, he was holed up in the mountains of North Idaho. And this was, I want to say it was like, Two years after, man, I've been longer than that, maybe four years after Ruby Ridge. And they had sent myself and another deputy to, I was in Texas during Ruby Ridge, but they sent myself and another deputy to North Idaho to open an office in Coeur d'Alene. There hadn't been any deputies there for a while. So I went from Texas, another deputy, the one with the big mustache, went from uh, Boise. So it was just us. We got tried to get to know the sheriffs and all of that. And then there was... FBI, a um, few FBI agents up there that were also being augmented a bit after that. And we're trying to just be a little different in the way we came across, you know, and not be that jackbooted thug that everybody was sure. accusing us of being. You know, our kids were in school and we'd go speak to schools and rotary clubs and whatnot. But somebody came down, a person came into us and said, hey, this guy's got my mom. He's hooked up with her up in the mountains and he's got my son and he's mm. basically got her brainwashed. And this guy, he was an evil, evil guy. Um, is, um, we ended up luring him off the mountain. When we lured him off the mountain, we told him that there was a Hispanic guy trying to buy guns and he had uh, white women with him. And that infuriated this guy so much that he came off the mountain to kill our fictional 
character or fictional bait character. Um, at that time, the director of the Marshal Service, his name was Eric Gonzalez. So we named our, our fictional guy, Eric Gonzalez. <laughs> but um, we, uh, when we arrested him, it was me and an FBI agent. My partner was out of town at the time on another issue. And there was county sheriffs and everybody involved in this big operation. And the FBI agent and I, the FBI agent was uh, a guy named Tom Norris, a Medal of Honor winner, Navy SEAL. Um, mm. Cool dude. Only FBI agent I ever met with one eye. He lost his eye in uh, in, uh, in Vietnam. Well, Dan Crenshaw. Yeah. Well, <laughs> not yeah, but he's FBI. That's a that's a rare thing when you yeah. see an enforcement person with a glass eye. But Tom Norris is just a incredible human being, uh, a mentor to my oldest son. Just a good guy. So Tom and I were basically approaching together and kind of a pincer movement to arrest this guy who had, who had booby traps on the mountain here. And of course, because of Ruby Ridge and whatever, um, when I called my headquarters and said, Hey, we got this guy, this got a kid up on a mountain with an older woman and he's wanted and he's got, I mean, he's a killer. He's bad dude. They were saying, they said, there is no way you're going into the mountains of North Idaho to arrest someone up on the mountain. You got to get him off the mountain. So we got him down. Tommy and I have him pinched uh, kind of in the middle of us. And um, we were supposed to catch him on a bridge, but he got, he got going a little bit too fast. And so Tommy saw a gun in his back pocket. And so he just pulled it beside him and sort of just bumped. The, he was on a bicycle, riding his bicycle really fast and to go meet our fictional guy. Tommy bumped him off the road. He went sort of, ass over tea kettle into the ditch and um we all bailed out we were right on top of him myself and a uh i can't remember his boundary county or bonner county deputy jumped on top of him and we kind of wrestled him down at the same time a nurse was driving by she thought there had just been a wreck and so she came up to try to pull us off and we had to say no ma'am step back step back <laughs> uh, this guy i mean there was guns falling out of every pocket he had and bear spray and tape and all that so uh we, fought, we got him cuffed and I was standing him up and he had grass all over his face. And, you know, we were all covered with grass stains. And as we stood him up, he looked at me and he said, it is obvious to me that you are more racially pure than I am, or you would have never won this confrontation. Oh my God. Said, okay. And then we got him in the car and I'm driving him to jail thinking, okay, I got the guy. He, he, his original case was, I think he'd robbed a store at gunpoint and, Wisconsin or someplace like that. Uh, and then he had taken a, a Jewish family, a Jewish couple hostage in Spokane and held him kidnapped for three days. Um, basically, he, his crimes were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And we got him in the car and he confessed to killing another white supremacist. And um, like on the way to the jail, just started talking to me and want to show me what a badass he was and confess to killing this because kid. he took him down and because he, thought, he, well, yeah, he thought that he had this list of people he's going to kill. And this guy he thought was going to blurt it out. And I guess he knocked the guy's tooth out when he hit him the first time before he shot him. And a bunch of people, deputy marshals and FBI and County people, because you have to have some corroborating evidence <laughs> and they uh, just, his confession wasn't enough. And so we spent a couple of days, at least a day and a half with like little sifters in the driveway of this cabin with pea gravel, trying to find that tooth oh, a year later. Oh, and one of, the county, one of the county deputies found it, found a wow. piece of a chipped tooth. It's like finding 
Tutankhamun's grave. It was so exciting. But anyway, this guy got uh, the death penalty and then it was commuted because of some Idaho legal issues and the judge can't give him a death penalty. It has to be a jury trial. So anyway, that guy was just looking him in the eye as often as I did. There was something seriously, seriously messed up with him. Wow. Have you, have you ever seen The Sopranos? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like uh, when Tony said to Richie, stop looking at me with those Manson lamps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This guy, <laughs> this guy was so, I'm sure he's been involved in, I don't want to talk about it here, but I feel very sure that he was involved in some other murders that have gone unsolved. Um, but I'm, wow. He's a bad guy. Wow. Well, to wrap things up, I definitely want to talk about your book. Mm-hmm. And really, we have been talking about your book because I'm guessing that your experiences are being translated to the page, just maybe wearing different characters. Is that a fair statement? No, and that's what I try to do. It's uh, You and I are not really that different in that we want to see the the bits and pieces of the, the undiscovered. I, I would call them unknown unknowns, the questions that you know, I do research. I have these questions I want to ask, these known unknowns. And then when I get out and do the research, I discover these things that I had no idea to even ask about. And these, so I, I do a lot of research like as you do before you're doing one of these, these broadcast or podcasts. But so people ask me a lot about my research for Alaska or, you know, prisoner ops or fugitive. I've been doing research on that for years and years and years, knowing that I wanted to write. Now, I I just did my job and just sort of glommed on to different things. And if something really cool, if I observed something really cool, I would write it down. Oh, this would be something to use someday. So I definitely plug in bad guys, the good men and women that I use the, in the books. The chief, for instance, I had a, I've had several women in law enforcement. My chief, when I first moved here, uh, is one of the finest bosses I've ever had in any job. So she is definitely a part of the Jill Phillips character, as are some of the other women that I've worked for and with over my career. And then Alaska becomes a huge character. So, you know, I just, there's really never any, there's never a lack of grist for the mill, if you will, for geography and culture and police work and just quirky characters and things like that. And it's exotic to us. Most most people have never been there and have no idea. So that has to help. Do you ever, and I'll wrap it up with this question. Do you ever use your books to revise history or to correct wrongs that you've seen? No, I don't. I don't think that I want to revise history, but what I'd want to do is maybe focus so if you say correct wrongs to focus the light of day on what we talked about with uh, going and taking people away, that that should be something that we don't forget about um, that we don't, that my, or the, there's a little conversation in the book before this one about um, between the, between Arliss and a federal judge. And that can be an adversarial thing if the judge doesn't want to be protected. Right. Um, yeah, and we have a tendency to sometimes as deputy marshals um, kind of poke fun at federal judges because they can they're so all powerful. It's a long, you know, it's a lifetime appointment. And we uh, we joke that, you know, as the difference in God and a federal judge is 
God doesn't think he's a federal judge. (laughs) God, the federal judge might not feel that way. So, you know, but, and so, but there's this conversation back and forth between the two of them and you realize, you know what? They're just people. They, they get touchy because we're around them all the time. They're up in their business trying to tell them, don't do this. You're going to get killed. You try to see it from all points of view. Um, But I, no, I mean, I, I try not to take too political a stand in these books. I, I'm obviously pro-law enforcement, but I like to think of myself as realistic rather than cynical or fatalistic or liberal or conservative or whatever. I just, my characters should have the reader. What I hope is that the reader will look at it and say, here's this man or woman versus this man or woman in this weather and this hardship. And I don't really care what their politics are they're trying to kill him so it doesn't really or kill someone and so i don't want to i don't want to wade that deep into it well perfect now people can find out more about your books at uh, markcameronbooks.com mm-hmm. with that double c in the middle there there you go and it really the latest book is bone rattle it's it came out very recently only a, a few weeks ago if i recall mm-hmm. um very cool book Neat, the Alaska Noir. As we're heading into summer, it might be a cool thing to chill out and listen to. And thank you very much, sir. It's been great talking to you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com, and there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. Laughter, tears, celebrities, newsmakers, anecdotes, and recipes. Wait, I was wrong. They don't do recipes. You can't hear food. Join host Randall Kenneth Jones, a man who is not the original cowboy in the village people, and announcer Susan C. Bennett, a woman who is the original voice of Siri, every week on Jones.show, a podcast so accessible, its name is a web address, www.jones.show. Hi, this is Kara Mayer Robinson, and I host Really Famous. I interview A-list celebrities. I dive deep because I used to be a therapist. This is what Tim Gunn said. I just have this antipathy for the judges. I can't stand being in the same room with them. Tim Daly. If you're not working in L.A. and you're an actor, there's no worse place to be. Michael Rappaport. I changed schools every year from the third grade to the twelfth grade. Disruptive was my thing. Chaz Palminteri. I knew something was going on. I said, I got to talk to somebody. It's Really Famous. It's like eavesdropping on a therapy session. 